try to pilot out a concept, try to get buy-in for a pilot, use that data and extrapolate. Um, or um, try to use proxies. If you've seen other sites that are doing similar things, um, try to use that to kind of forecast where you could be uh, by bridging the two and come out with a logic uh, that's sound. We all strive for more nowadays, more traffic, more revenue, more growth. In this never-ending battle for more, it's easy to forget what's important. So what is important? Building real relationships with real humans and trying to be better each day without caring quite so much about getting more. After all, by building real and meaningful relationships, you'll have way more than you ever need. The SaaS SEO Show is a platform for meaningful connections and honest conversations with people who are real, hardworking practitioners and high performers in the SaaS industry. We're here to learn and get inspired by them, and we hope you do too. Now, here's your host, George Cassiotis. Before we jump into today's episode, I'd like to give a quick shout out to the sponsor for this episode, Ahrefs. Ahrefs provides you with an all-in-one SEO toolset that does everything from rank tracking to backlink analysis, keyword research, and technical audits. The best part, you can now use Ahrefs Webmaster Tools for free to identify and prioritize optimization opportunities for your website, see all the keywords that your web pages are ranking for, take a close look at the websites that link back to and refer you in their content, and analyze other websites to find out what drives their rankings. Visit ahrefs.com AWT and sign up for free. And now, back to today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the SaaS SEO Show. I'm your host, George Cassiotis, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Felipe Santos. Felipe is a global, the global director of SEO at Toptal and had previously led organic growth uh, at some amazing companies such as UiPath, Satterstock, and the list goes on. I'm very excited to be joined by him because he's a real practitioner and I'm sure that he will share with us many interesting insights. Um, Felipe, welcome to the show. <laughs> thank you, Giorgio. So I really appreciate being here. Uh, thank you for the kind intro as well. <laughs> so as we do with every guest here at the SASA CSO, uh, I would love, and I guess our listeners as well, to, to get to know you a bit better. Uh, so if you could share a few things about your journey so far uh, that were important and that you know, led to uh, where you are today. I'll try to I'll try to make it interesting. I, I think it, it kind of is. <laughs> uh, it goes quite a big uh, a way back. Fifteen years. I started off uh, thinking that I wanted to be a web designer and developer. Uh, but then I realized I didn't really love it because it was too back office. Then I flipped over to the front end of that and went wholeheartedly into uh, being a door-to-door sales uh, sales guy for Super Pages way back when, when Verizon owned it. Uh, so then um, I guess I'd already known about SEO from my web development days, but it started to kind of become a real discipline in marketing. Uh, started to have some guidelines, started to have some rules. It wasn't all about stuffing things into meta tags and uh, all the garbage that uh, had been in the past. So I started getting really interested with it again. And from then on, I kind of never looked back. Started on the agency side, uh, realized I really like to uh, hyper-focus on solving problems and thinking about specific projects and initiatives. 
So then I went client side. And that brings us to today where I've uh, dealt with some of the smallest and biggest companies uh, that people know. Um, and some of the most exciting ones, obviously, uh, in the recent past, Shutterstock, UiPath, and uh, TopTel. So very different businesses, very different structures, very different problems, but uh, same consistent thing where innovation is key and understanding how to deliver uh, everything through SEO to get the maximum impact uh, has been my focus. So nowadays you are leading the SEO efforts for TopTal. For people who have never heard of TopTal, can you please share a few things about it? Uh, who is using the, the product and who gets the most value? Absolutely. So TopTal is a, a very interesting because it's a unique uh, platform. It's a, it's a marketplace of sorts, uh, but it's more than that. Um, uh, as uh, instead of just offering up uh, the ability to get talent across multiple verticals, especially developers, uh, designers, uh, project managers, product managers, and finance folks, they hyper focus, uh, focus on vetting the, the folks that are in the network. So the people that are there are truly experts, truly the, the top percentage of uh, the best of the best in all the skills that you might look for. Uh, so the, the, the really important thing there is that clients um, of all sizes, uh, startups all the way up to enterprises have been able to take advantage of that, when you're, whether it's uh, looking for a very specific resource that they don't have or uh, you know, hiring out a whole team of folks to kind of cover the bases or actually complete entire projects or build out businesses. Uh, so that's been uh, kind of a fascinating part about the marketplace that I don't think any other marketplace kind of serves up quite that way. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I get it and I agree with you. Um, even though we, we are not, you know, customers of Total, I guess that if you are looking for talent uh, in some categories, uh, this must be the place to, to look for, uh, for talent. You have led growth, organic growth in some very big companies. Um, and I, I will focus on UiPath and Shutterstock because these are, I, I guess, in my world at least, uh, of the SaaS industry, uh, they are very uh, notable ones. And I would like to, to know, how would you summarize your experience and everything that you've learned uh, working with such big companies? And in Shutterstock's case, with such a strong focus on, on organic search. Yeah, so, so the quick and skinny uh, kind of interesting part of this is that they had uh, been undergoing like a huge migration and we're like in the midst of it and we're losing ground in organic. <laughs> so the key part for me was to uh, A, just um, start to kind of uh, grab the reins and make sure that the technical parts of the migration were handled for SEO. Uh, that we were also ensuring that the content that was being put up was also relevant and uh, you know qualitative, and at the same time handling uh, a lot of the internationalization that was happening uh, across different languages that they wanted to add in as a, a go-to-market strategy. So um, what I what I would say is that uh, their uh, corpus of content having it all be organic. I mean three billion pieces, if you think about uh, across the different uh, languages that they cover, uh, made it a really, really difficult situation, but uh, something that had to be harnessed. And um, the only way I was able to do that, I was kind of working with multiple teams, especially product content and uh, working through other marketing uh, you know, groups and stakeholders, uh, acquisition, for example, to ensure that we had the technology stack properly kind of accounted for. We understood what uh, levers we had at our disposal at that moment, and then kind of putting in a, a roadmap for the future so that we could uh, have healthy indexing 
We can start to put out just what people wanted and understand how to use our data better, right? So that was a key part, and we did that. I mean, we were increasing our, our indexed coverage over image search as well as uh, web search uh, in the, I would say, upper hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of percent uh, every single month uh, because of the amount of content and also because of the importance of that content. We just had to figure out some very nuanced problems. And I guess also, you know, quality as well must have yes. played a role, yeah? Especially for images. Absolutely. And, and the hardest part, as you can imagine, for any marketplace is that you've got user-generated content, right? That's, that's the focus. Uh, so you have to make sure that the content's uh, A, uh, relevant, B, uh, it's got the quality that you need, and, and C, it's differentiated from other bits and out there, especially if you're not exclusive. Um, so in many cases, we had to also make sure that our platforms were handling that and also producing a level of quality that uh, and, and uniqueness that uh, differentiated it and allowed it to be indexed and placed uh, in top ranks. Yeah, because I, I would say that in general, as I as I understand it, SEO is just a part of it. Like a, a very big part of it is also product, and <clears throat> you have to maintain quality there. Otherwise, you know, people are not going to use the service, or if you know they are going to use the service, maybe they will um, not be happy with it and just uh, find uh, look for another solution. Um, you mentioned um, website migrations and. Uh, you briefly uh, touched on acquisitions as well. Recently, we've been working with a, a client who has acquired um, a website, and uh, you know we we try to handle all the migration. We try to choose what new pages we have to create to this website to to the website that we are going to redirect everything so that we can map everything accordingly. We had to, of course, exclude some pages. Uh, so. There are many decisions that had to be made, uh, and at the same time, there was a lot of opinion, you know, about things because anyone can do things in their own way, actually. And I I can only assume that this is very simple based on uh, compared to the migrations and uh, website acquisitions that you have handled. But I would like to to um, two questions here. The first one would be um, if you could could share with us, you know the pros and cons of website acquisitions for SaaS companies based on your experience. And um, also um, a, a general comment on what those experiences have taught you uh, about acquiring you know, businesses and websites behind these businesses. Great question, and in both parts. <laughs> uh, obviously very loaded because there's a lot that uh, comes in with it. But I would say um, some of the pros, just to begin with, uh, I really love the pros of this, uh, of acquisitions that you gain, um, obviously the brand value, you gain a lot of the uh, already uh, conducted work around uh, organic or any other channels that they've they've ha had under their, their belt for the acquisition. Uh, and another potential pro is that you are kind of aligning your business and you're, you're able to add more capacity and also uh, extend the um, service offering. The, from the con side, I would say that there's a resistance. There tends to be a resistance, especially if it's a business that has employees, there's a resistance from that level. There can be a resistance between the type of content that's being produced as well uh, and the voice and the tone and how it actually is structured and if it's interconnected or not. Uh, there's another con, which is the tech stack. If you haven't done your work around determining what the tech stack is and how easy it is to uh, migrate that over or kind of at least come to terms with the, what the technology is and how you can use it across your platforms or across your business, uh, that's another 
big potential con and uh, drives out a lot more uh, business costs, right? Because you have to be able to solve that. Um, there's also a time factor. So uh, depending on the type of acquisition, it can be uh, easily migrated if you have a very good uh, roadmap and kind of uh, methodology. Or it can be a really torturous one where you, uh, you you don't really understand a lot of things. Many components are missing. And now you have to figure that all out while you're flying the plane. So this is the flying the plane and fixing it at the same time, which makes it extremely difficult. Um, with regards to the kind of learnings of that, well, um, I've noted that... Uh, most acquisitions, again, this is all. This all comes up to, I guess, executive buy-in, right? They might have made the decision uh, to acquire a property or acquire a business, uh, but at the end of the day, it's uh, it's up to teams like the SEO team to help, it, like, kind of create the foundation and create a, a plan, an action plan, uh, which comprises of all the components, including the business side of things. So, uh, while we're not trying to step on toes, I think it's important to understand what implications it has on the business so that you can help drive it at least from your. Uh, area of expertise and specialization. Then you have to kind of make sure that you're involved in the conversations with other teams that are involved in that actual migration or in that um, that acquisition activity. I've had the benefit of actually leading acquisitions, uh, which is kind of un unusual for SEOs, and also having been kind of thrown into acquisitions once they've already been made and figure out what to do with them once we've, we've gotten that. So um, I think I, I prefer the, the former, but uh, both of them are kind of exciting. I, I really like uh, the answer and how you broke everything down. Uh, and um, I would like to shift gears a bit and touch on something that you mentioned uh, in, in your previous uh, answer, which is um, something that I'm very interested in. And I first uh, read about it in your uh, LinkedIn profile while I was doing research for this episode. Um, one thing you you worked on, uh, I guess, in both UiPath and Shutterstock uh, and other companies that you have worked on in the past is uh, internalize internal int sorry internationalization. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Internalize. Yeah, yeah, I will not try Quite to, a word. to say it. Yeah, it it is it is uh, and localization obviously, which is yep. f uh, far easier, I guess. Uh, can you please explain the difference between uh, the two? Um, because I am in this world, let's say, of uh, of content SEO, but I've never I've heard localization, but I've never heard the other term that I'm not even going to try to 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 pronounce. <laughs> Absolutely. So there are a, a myriad of different terms that are thrown out there, like internationalization and localization. Uh, I know they're a mouthful, and they go by like small monikers. I think it's like INTL uh, something. I forgot. There's like it's like um, L. 18 and I'm sorry, uh, so that it just kind of short, shortens it down. Um, but again, so the simple uh, difference between the two is that uh, think of internationalization as getting your site, platform, business, and operations ready to handle uh, different um, languages and locations. That's essentially all it is, is um, machine translations, having the right kind of punctuation, right kind of like, uh, you know, formatting for the site content, uh, ensuring that you, you have a way to deliver international content or content to specific localities. Uh, localization is very specific with trying to get a market, uh, you know, getting going for a unique or a niche market or a, a language market and ensuring that you've got uh, a delivery of content and everything else that's part of international uh, internationalization. Localization is just making sure that that experience is pleasant because 
I might land on a page that is uh, internationalized and has Spanish. Uh, but if it's not, let's say I'm from Spain and I'm getting uh, Puerto Rican Spanish, it's not going to help me very much because, you know, we have different vernacular and there's uh, clearly a different way that we look at things. There might be words that don't make sense at all. <laughs> there are different words completely. So it's very important to make sure they have localization as a part of your marketing effort and internationalization as kind of your platform technology uh, level uh, aspect of, of uh, maintaining and controlling that go to market strategy okay that that makes sense now um on a different topic i'm very interested in uh in this question and i would like to know uh, i assume that uh, as part of your role uh which was and still is i guess to find negotiate with and retain even uh good uh vendors service providers partners you can call them however you like as a service provider ourselves i'd really love to know what you know both public and big private uh, companies look for uh, when evaluating vendors and also any insights and advice that you can share with people who are uh, in the process of evaluating uh, vendors for you know any projects or needs that they may have. Absolutely. That's a great question. I know it's also very complicated. Right? Uh, I could talk about it a million different ways. Um, there, from the public uh, company side, uh, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy. There are different departments that handle things. For example, procurement, which sometimes uh, in older, more stagnant companies, you know, they have a role to play, right? And their role, role is to try to negotiate the price to be optimal and to negotiate terms. And sometimes that can be uh, a problem just because it, it can uh, cause a little bit of tension between uh, relationships uh, with the vendor and the client and the, the actual end user. Uh, so it's very important to kind of make friends with the procurement team and make sure that they understand that, like, if you've done some negotiating or if you've done some work to get the best possible price that they understand that and they maybe uh, take a less uh, aggressive tact in, in working through um, you know, a relationship like that. From the private side, it tends to be more, uh, I would say more like startup-ish in, in many cases where you kind of ultimately have the control. And it's up to you as the uh, person who's like the main uh, uh, vendor hirer, if you will, uh, to ensure that the relationship's good. And you're obviously doing as much cost savings as you can in some cases, as well as getting every feature and capacity that you need. So it's kind of a nice little balance. And I've I've been able and, and lucky enough to be able to like learn how to do both. Uh, and the, the main thing I would say is when engaging a vendor, so first of all, to simplify the whole thing, it's uh, finding uh, a solution to your problem. So every single time you're looking for a vendor, you're basically looking for a way to solve for a problem either on a project level or uh, even on an ongoing, like recurring basis. So if I'm looking for a platform that I can use all year round every year, that's going to be something that I have to absolutely know I have the tool set for. If it's something like uh, getting a content development, uh, I'll have a whole different set of instructions. Maybe it's for a specific project. Uh, or maybe it's also ongoing, but like it's in stages or tranches. So the best thing I can offer up is whenever uh, going into a relationship as a, um, a a person who's hiring a vendor, I would say that you should always kind of have your information ahead of, of you if you can. Think about exactly what you need. Have uh, Do the due diligence with talking with um, your team members and other uh, stakeholders to find out what kind of features, what kind of cap uh, capacities are needed uh, and how many of them strike the cord and how many you can check off the, the boxes that make sense for you so that you get a, a, the best possible vendor to meet your needs. Now, 
from the vendor side, uh, I would say it's really critical to make sure you've you've addressed as many common scenarios and as common uh, as common a problem set as you can, so that when people are searching and trying to figure out which solution is best for them, or even if you're having direct conversations already, uh, you've got case studies or at least interesting concepts or innovations that you're working on to um, that are guided in your uh, prospect's best interest uh, and sharing that as often and as transparently as possible because that does make uh, a lot of uh, communications go more smoothly and helps the end user a lot. I've had that where vendors come to me proactively and I love it. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be hard sold, but I want to be convinced that they've got something that can definitely help me either uh, save time uh, get more expertise or figure out something that I just do not have a full handle of. Okay, that's that's a great answer. I think you you kind of kind of touched on on that, um, which is bureaucracy in in bigger companies, which which is obviously you know uh, a common theme in in bigger companies. As a company grows, uh, there will be more layers, uh, more signatures, more everything, and. I would like to to know how do you fight that? Um, how do you make sure that you launch new initiatives um, faster and um, you know without so many people being involved and having to uh, have a, a say on on the um, the approval or not of the project? Georgius, amazing question, <laughs> and boy has my uh, perception of answering that changed over the years, right? Um, when I first started, I was kind of um, hitting my head against the wall. And I was basically, here's this amazing thing. I've done everything. I've got the solutions for you here. You just have to say yes and mark it and let's do it. And that never goes anywhere because even if it's a smaller company, uh, there are those levels and there are those people who are charged with making the decisions. And even though we want to be as proactive as possible and we want to bring solutions, sometimes we have to understand that we're basically just a facilitator, right? We have to facilitate what the business needs. And in that regard, uh, meaning we bring a, a set of solutions, we bring scenarios, we bring uh, what the possible solution is, but we, and we, of course, we can guide it, <laughs> uh, but it's ultimately up to the executives or the leadership to kind of uh, come through with that and make sure that they can sign it off. The other piece that is very important besides the executive layer or the, the management layer is um, making friends in all of the departments. Uh, and, and I mean that in the most legitimate way. I really do uh, connect with people because, and I want to connect with people because I know at the end of the day, even if I don't work with them today, there might be a time in the future where we, we need to work together. And what's better than having already having a warm handshake? I mean, it's just very important. And I think it's key to be uh, go outside of your comfort zone, um, you know, ice break as much as possible, meet people from different teams, even if they don't seem like they're relevant to your work, uh, because one day they will. Uh, and, and I mean that because um, I have worked on projects where all of a sudden <laughs> I'm tasked with doing something and it's with a department I, I really did not even uh, consider um, outside of just being friendly. Uh, and it, it it paid uh, you know dividends because it was much easier to kind of push things and kind of help have them help me with what is less resistant, uh, what has a lower barrier to to kind of get across the finish line, and to help me get projects promoted. The other bit of um, of uh, I guess advice I would give to everybody here is besides uh, working on the executive and and trying to simplify things and make it clear for them and giving them uh, possible solutions but not forcing anything and working with making friends and making sure that you work with multiple departments is simplifying everything and speaking the language of the business so if you're able to clearly uh, delineate what the business cares about and what seo cares about by creating a proxy 
uh, you're going to be, uh, it's going to be a little less foreign. So just imagine we're in a room and your native language is Italian and mine is Spanish. It's close, but it's not really the same, right? Um, so I have to be able to kind of bridge that. And if we both speak English, at least we can we can start there, right? Uh, and I think that's the way I would uh, communicate this is that you need to understand um, how to uh, present your ideas as simply as you can and with very uh, tight relevance to the business objectives. And from there, then you can uh, sell your project a lot faster. I agree with you. And but on top of that, I would like to to also hear your thoughts on something else. How do you answer the the Roy question? Because this is something that I guess not only you know agencies like us uh, get all the time. Uh, okay, but how do we know that this is going to work? A mm -hmm. and B. Um, like, how can we make a projection or forecast or whatever? Um, so that I can make my case stronger and try to like sell it, let's say internally. Um, in your opinion, do for I'm like we we can do forecasts, okay? But I'm a bit skeptical because I know that they they paint a picture which at the end of the day doesn't really say anything. It's just you know for instant gratification. Yeah, we have this forecast and this is how the traffic will look like. But at the end of the day, it's not. It's not true. Like no forecast is accurate. Like it's, you just paint a picture. And I would like to hear your thoughts on that. Like, do you think that there is actual value on forecasting things? And if yes, like, do you have any insights or anything that you can share with us that could help, you know, uh, in launching new initiatives uh, uh, regarding content SEO? Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, to, to exactly where you're going with this, I, I agree. I think forecasts um, inherently, if you're using uh, data that you currently have and it isn't proven, it's going to be flawed. And there is no such thing as a, a perfect model. <laughs> um, but it's your best bet if you have no other uh, data and if you can't get there yet. Uh, but I would say for those that can, <laughs> try to pilot out a concept, try to get buy-in for a pilot, use that data and extrapolate. Um, or um, try to use proxies. If you've seen other sites that are doing similar things, um, try to use that to kind of forecast where you could be uh, by bridging the two and come out with a logic uh, that sound, you know, basically, if you're going to compare yourself, uh, you know, with an apple and apple, that's one thing. If you're comparing an apple and orange, you, you got to have a reason uh, why that orange is similar, right? And you have to be able to make it concrete. And that's the hardest part. So I would try to stick to close um, comparables, similar to what they do in the real estate market. If you're looking at a, a different houses or apartments, you're going to want to get a comp that's similar. And that's the same thing here. If you can't um, do a pilot, pilots also help uh, very much because you you start to collect some data and you can say how realistic or not realistic that that uh, initial uh, forecast is, and then sell it a little bit better. That's a great analogy. I I like it, and I think that this is this this may be the the highlight of of the the podcast, like the the one that we will keep for the for the intro. I would like to nice. take it to a, a different uh, topic now, uh, and I would like to talk about Google a bit. Um, and specifically, uh, Google's uh, latest uh, algorithm update, uh, helpful content update. Um, what are your thoughts on this update? Any, any, uh, you know, insights that you can share? Uh, how do you think that it will affect how content is uh, is developed? Yeah, I know. I know it's a little early, and uh, obviously, I'm, I'm kind of watching things as they kind of roll out. But I, I do kind of feel it's similar to Panda in a in a sense uh, that they're really trying to like deal with thinned out content, duplicate content, poor quality uh, AI content, stuff like that. 
But at the same time, I also believe that um, there's no such thing as stripping out AI content just because it's AI content. That does, that's not what they're trying to say here. What they're trying to say here is that essentially, if your content is uh, done uh, to just make it as uh, boilerplate as possible to cover as many bases as you can, it's not going to be very very uh, effective because it's not giving users what they need, and when they get there, they're not going to enjoy it. Um, so essentially, they're using those, uh, you know, NLP methods. They're using uh, the the machine learning um, algorithms that they've started to build to understand nuance. Uh, so we kind of have to be better about creating quality content, and by uh, and quality can be a very heavy lifting word. But in this sense, if you're trying to sell specific services or you're offering specific products, and people have problems that are associated with that, and you help define it, but then you also give them answers and you give them a lot of good resourcing, something that is authoritative and uh, has expert content, uh, there's there's like very little chance that that's not going to do, do well. Uh, what they're trying to do is target specifically uh, stuff that's done in bulk as crap. Uh, and I, you know, AI content can be that, but there's also AI content I've seen that has been much better than what somebody has written uh, by hand. So it's more about just understanding. Uh, to what level you take it if you do a little blend of both obviously you want to get rid of any like low quality content or a perfor low performing content that's just like not helping your audience out and focusing a little less on uh, what you think google has wanted over the past years and kind of focus on how do i make sure that this is optimized but also very clear in terms of getting something valuable and useful as a nugget for our for the user if you've done that then you've done your job and i don't think this uh, update will really affect you very much and it is probably going to be a low, a low and slow rumbler, uh, meaning that this is not going to be an instant that you're going to see a dip like uh, in past years. Uh, but it's consistent with last year and the year before, where it's been like you start seeing chipping away at your uh, at your traffic if you're doing things wrong. And in this case, uh, we don't know what wrong is yet, right? We we can under, only understand from what they've told us that it's it tends to be stuff that is duplicative, um, low quality, or just like produced in bulk. Uh, and I think that's the, those are the key things I would watch out for. If you have that, uh, just start working on making a better model or creating new content that can help support the, the user at the end that's doing the search. And if you're getting better click-through methods, uh, click-through rates and stuff, then you're, you're probably starting to solve that problem for you. Do you see updates like this showing, indicating on behalf of Google uh, a gradual shift, let's say, from purely text-based content to interactive content or, I don't know, something else that we are not aware of yet, uh, meaning that everyone can write words. Not everyone can create meaningful experiences or memorable experiences online. Uh, do you think that it could also be that, you know what, okay, text is great, but um this is not the only thing entities and you know stuffing keywords or whatever or checking all the boxes is not going to be enough because i'm better uh at understanding whether or not you are actually providing a people with with a, a great experience mm -hmm. absolutely agree with you uh, and it's not because uh, i think google didn't want to or we didn't want to as seos I think it's always been a technical barrier, right? <laughs> Text is just easier. It is something that machines can, you know, without um, the leverage of AI, uh, we're able to kind of like figure out. I mean, I don't know uh, if folks remember, but like the old flash days and all that where nothing was visible and you like, you had to create text behind it. And there were like all these creative methods. It's, it's like that. So basically with machine learning and with AI, 
there is visual recognition through like computer vision. There's uh, other ways to start determining things. There's like uh, all the, the recent trend with like uh, deep fakes uh, and video analysis uh, engines. So all that is starting to come together to a point where overhead is less. And again, when, when we're talking about overhead and like tech debt in terms of like how easy it is to build a component to an algorithm that can determine how valuable and what a piece of content is about. And I'm talking about any piece of content, interactive or not. Um, that's going to be the key to what our uh, our SEO skills in the future may become uh, is focusing rather not uh, not just on textual content, but on supporting the experience, as you mentioned. And I really like that because um, I, I've never been one to say that uh, a page should be text heavy, right? It, it, it feels terrible to have a text heavy page unless you're a researcher and you're looking through a, like a, a paper and you need to get really deep into the woods, uh, into the, the weeds. But for most people, we're visual creatures, right? We want to see, we want to experience, we want to feel, we want to touch. We have different sensations, and that's the same that's going to happen with the the V, you know, the VR and the AR, and all these things are already here. It's just how do you classify them and serve them up in a search engine? So I don't think uh, we're too far away, and we're definitely they're definitely working on it now. It's just uh, right now the easiest thing and the cheapest thing is text. Yeah, I I understand. Yeah, I understand and I agree. Um, speaking of the skills of the future, I assume that a big part of your work nowadays is to find, inspire, and retain great talent. And I would like to know what, in your experience, are the characteristics of a talented SEO person? And also, how do you inspire and retain these people? That's a great question. And I, I have done probably more hiring in the last three years than I've done in my whole career. Uh, and that's a good thing. It, it's uh, led me to, to understand exactly what and what is not necessary from like interview processes and, um, you know, how to kind of tell the shining stars uh, of the bunch, even if they're uh, neophytes and, or they don't understand things or they haven't been in SEO. Uh, the core thing is, I think, and this is probably trite. People have heard this before. It's uh, the creative, they have to have like a sense of creativity. Uh, they have to be extremely curious <laughs> and they have to be kind of, um, I hate to say go-getter, but they have to be willing to kind of put a little more time, even if it's not like, you know, in their personal time to figure things out because SEO is ever changing, uh, never stays the same. Uh, there are all kinds of things that are associated with SEO. So it's never just SEO, right? You kind of want to understand a little bit of programming. You want to understand a little bit of content marketing. You want to understand social, all these other things that are kind of adjacent uh, and things that are even not like the business, for example, what's the business model? How does that apply to you? How do you sell your projects? So if you're, if you're really, uh, um, for most talent that are trying to come through the door and that I, I see, I'm looking for the characteristics of, uh, are they kind of picking up things on their own? Are they willing to? Uh, do they have the curiosity to keep asking questions <laughs> and, and uh, asking the right kind of questions and kind of leading their, their thought process? Uh, can they come up with unique ways of solving problems, even if it's you know not considered correct? Uh, and can they kind of, um, are they part of a team? Do they really want to like contribute and, and do they feel like this is a mission that they want to keep riding with? And I think that kind of encapsulates all the things that I look for. Uh, and then I, I kind of look at the specialization. I look at the the, you know their focus, what they what they've done in their life, and like where their areas of of um, strength might be. Uh, so I think that's one. And then to retain and kind of keep people motivated, I I sift out what their specializations are. I sift out what they feel strong in uh, strongly in, or what they really love to do. And then I try to um, see if there are projects or things that we need to work on that um, can use those skills. And I kind of uh, pave out a little road for those folks to kind of go that or that route and see if they like it and kind of get themselves engaged and even uh, lead certain aspects of that uh, so that they feel like they've had enough skin in the game and they really are um, able to build themselves up and learn new skills and uh, advance their career as well. 
So I think it's key that people recognize their strengths uh, if you're a leader or a manager, and you recognize exactly how to um, forge people into uh, projects and initiatives. Uh, even if you have none at the at the moment, maybe you can start like coming up with ones that are relevant to the business and relevant to your roadmap. Do you see a, a world where the skills of today that are important today for an SEO professional uh, and a strong team member are just you know irrelevant, let's say, um, in the near future? Like maybe we will be discussing not about I don't know uh, keyword research or whatever with a traditional sense, but about something else in the future, uh, maybe. SEO professionals should be more focused on um, knowing or learning how to code, for example. Do you see a, a change in the future? And I guess the the question that I would like to to hear your thoughts on here would be: Do you think that there is a future actually for for SEO? I do. I, I don't think SEO is going to go away as long as we have a way uh, or we have a need for finding information, right? As long as that exists in some form, uh, it may not be an engine. It may not be a search engine in the traditional uh, aspect, but th there is a, going to be a, a form of a corpus of information of humanity, of all the things that we need. And there's got to be a way to a, present that information and collect that information, right, as, as part B. So I think that that will not change. What will change, I do agree with you, skills will have to be transferred. There will be new things added uh, to our complexity. So I think uh, being able to be creative, I, I mentioned the creative aspect is more about like coming up with content, right? Uh, and then on the other side is technical. So you're going to have to understand how to use those uh, those creative concepts in a technical way because we're becoming more and more dependent on machines and on on like algorithms and it's just the nature of the beast. That's what we we do. Like look at it at the smartphone. I mean, we were using flips a, a while back and we didn't know anything about using all these sophisticated things on our phone. And now we're using it for everything, like uh, to the point of communication, we're doing it for GPS, we're doing it for uh, finding our best restaurant, looking at reviews, doing all that stuff. So uh, we didn't think that was going to come so fast, but here it is. And now everybody's dependent on that, including f folks that don't really aren't even good with technology. So I think uh, it's just a matter of transferring um, skills to something new. I think that's a great way to, um, you know, close things. Uh, that was all very, very insightful. I, I mean, I learned many, uh, new things from, from this episode, and I'm sure that people will, um, definitely learn something new as well. Uh, Felipe, thank you very much. Uh, last question I have for you is where people can find out more about you and get in touch if they want. Yeah, so I think the easiest, as you mentioned, is LinkedIn. I, th uh, I do a lot more on LinkedIn. I don't really uh, put out too much of my own stuff. I might build out a site in the, in the near future, but LinkedIn. Yeah, so Philippe-Santos-SEO, uh, uh, or you can just uh, search Philippe-Santos-SEO or Philippe-Santos. It'll come up. The okay. only problem is that since my name is Philippe-Santos, it's the uh, John Smith of, uh, let's say, Brazil and Portugal. Okay, we will drop it in the show notes. We will drop the URL in the show notes so that we can make it easier for people to connect with you. Uh, Philippe, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, knowing how busy you are, I really you know, appreciate you coming here and uh, talk to us. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, and who knows, uh, maybe we'll have to do another episode uh, in, in the near future to talk about the, the next level uh, of uh, SEO and uh, all these interesting things. Sounds great. Thank you, Georges, for having me and I uh, appreciate uh, the conversation. It's been amazing. Thank you for staying with us until the end. Before you go, I'd like to give a quick shout out to the sponsor for this episode, 
Ahrefs. Ahrefs provides you with an all-in-one SEO toolset that does everything from rank tracking to backlink analysis, keyword research, and technical audits. The best part, you can now use Ahrefs Webmaster Tools for free to identify and prioritize optimization opportunities for your website, see all the keywords that your web pages are ranking for, take a close look at the websites that link back to and refer you in their content, and analyze other websites to find out what drives their rankings. Visit ahrefs.com awt and sign up for free. Another episode of the SaaS SEO Show has wrapped. We hope this episode has taught you something new too. We'd like you to connect with us so you can keep up with all the new content that we're creating. Before you go, it would mean the world to us if you could subscribe to this podcast and over at our YouTube channel where we upload the video version of this and every episode. Until next time.